0: With Levels, I found phenomenal consistency. Everybody was on the same page. Everybody knew what the values were and what they were gonna be. Especially when having an employee zero or a founder at startups in the past, you kind of learn to smell BS, right? And I didn't even have the tiniest whiff of that. For me, weirdly, joining Levels was a little bit disorienting because when I joined Levels as employee 10, It was already the biggest company that I had worked at in the last five years. Yeah, it's a little bit different for me, I guess. I'm Ben Grenell, part of the early startup team here at Levels. We're building tech that helps people to understand their metabolic health, and this is your front row seat to everything we do. This is a whole new Level. As our team's grown, we've started to lean into this idea of having team member episodes. Ones where different members of the team sit down with each other and chat. They learn more about their backgrounds and they talk more about the work they do, some of the philosophies they have. Well, Mike Haney, editorial director at Levels, Jeremy Phelps, one of the earliest software engineers on our team, the two of them sat down and they chatted through Jeremy's backstory, how he came to Levels, where he grew up, and the way that he thinks. Well, no need to wait. Here's Haney with the intro.
1: I'm Mike Haney, Editorial Director at Levels. And I was employee, I think, 13 here. And I mentioned that because that feels pretty early to me, but Jeremy Phelps, who we're speaking to in this episode, predated me. I think he was around employee 10, as we find out in this conversation. And because of that, Jeremy's somebody that I've looked to as a bit of a touchstone for how Levels works and how people here live The levels culture. So I was excited to sit down and get a chance to learn a little bit more about Jeremy's path here, what he was bringing into the levels culture, what he's learned in the time that he's been here. So in this episode, we go from his circuitous journey here from the small town cornfields of Illinois to an algorithmic trading desk through a master's in computer science and a startup that was focused on company culture, which is what ultimately led him to discover levels and find that this was exactly the kind of company he was interested in and and interested in helping to build. So this is where Jeremy and I kicked it off. Well don't really have a strong expectation for this episode, and I suspect you don't either. I think this falls into the genre of episode that we're exploring, which is get to know the Levels team. I think we all have a high bar because I think one of those first was Matt talking about being in the NFL. And unless it's oh, no. part of your history, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, And I don't want to go all Mark Maron, where did you come from? But the only bit of research, I'll confess, that I did coming into this was to look back at your user guide. Because you and I both predate the uh, Spotlight articles, so we don't have that nice little profile of us. And I think I remember discussing this a little bit when I first started and we chatted, but we have very similar upbringings. I was a bit north of you, but you grew up in the small town, Midwestern cornfields.
0: Oh, yeah. Like I said, I've lived in Illinois my entire life and both parts, right, in the middle of nowhere uh, and in the middle of Chicago. I'm two very, very different places, but that was a long time ago.
1: It looked from just your trajectory, like you had a sense fairly early on that you were going to get out of the small town and go to the other part of Illinois. Is that fair? Or did that come over time?
0: Oh, yeah. No, I knew I didn't really fit in in the small town, never really did. And I was constantly pushing up against the conservative mores because, <laughs> you know, when you you grew up in a town of three four thousand people, if you don't agree with politics or the way that people do things in a place like that, you'll be pushed out. You just won't feel like you belong. And so a lot of kids, what you do is you go to the big city and Mm. I'm still here. (laughs) You still have family in the small town? Oh yeah. Both my parents are still there. My sister and her entire family is there. My brother's about an hour away. So yeah, like I'm the only one that left.
1: Oh, wow. So you still get the taste of it when you go back.
0: Yep. Thanksgiving, Christmas. I get the reminder of why I moved where I did.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I had very much the same. I, you know, I left and went to Minneapolis was my nearest big town a couple hours away, which I would do for school. Same thing. Folks still in the small town. I go back. I can squint and look at the small town in a very positive light and go like, oh, the main street, like a couple of stores have come back and they have a coffee shop and it's kind of charming. And then I opened my eyes a little further and I'm like, nah, it's a dumpy little manufacturing town in the middle of the cornfields.
0: Yeah. Look, I mean, my entire family lives there and they're very happy. If it suits you, there's no better place. just doesn't suit me.
1: Yeah, that was my experience. And we ran the experiment. We left New York City and moved to upstate New York to a town similar size of what I grew up in. Much nicer, just sort of because of where it was and, and whatever, a wealthier town, I would say. Within a month of being there, all those feelings of being 17 and wanting to get the hell out of town came back. And I was like, oh, no, oh, no, I, I can't do the small town thing. And we we stayed there for three years before we sort of escaped. But it was very clear to me right uh, away. No, nope. some people, like you said, I mean, obviously there's, there's people for whom that's absolutely the right place to be. And we knew a lot of folks in that town who had moved there from Brooklyn and loved the like escape from the big city back to the small town. But I'm curious if you find this, what I really missed was and what I get from the bigger city is just, just the energy. It's like what, you know, I would say New York is like walking around inside a battery, and San Diego's not quite that. Chicago's a little closer because you've got the density. Yeah. Um, and that's when I went to a small town. The overall level of energy surrounding me is just lower. And for some people, that's awesome. And I was like, nope, I need that to keep myself going.
0: Yeah. I'm totally with you. Again, I, I think I just need a higher percentage of that energy, right? I mean, I think we all need the time away to drive a couple hours outside the city and walk through nature and stuff like that. It's not go, go, go all the time. But in my mind, it's kind of a sense of urgency, right? If I'm doing something or walking somewhere or interacting with someone in a small town, it's very, okay, let's stand here and chat. How's the family, right? But in a nice big city, it's okay. Here's the thing. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Have a good day. Goodbye. Right. And I like that, but what falls away though, is those really rich community connections and you have to seek that out in a big city. But the nice thing is that it is available. It's just buried a little bit deeper. Whereas in a small town, you're sort of forced to interact with everyone, whether you like them or not.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That definitely resonates. It's one of the things we've been here in San Diego for two and a half years now, but the bulk of it, COVID times. And so we still have no community here because we moved here and started to get to know people then we hid away in our house for two years. And it is kind of a funny paradox that the more you are surrounded by people, the harder it is to actually find that community.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Look, uh, I think it was Hopper, his Nighthawks at the diner, that painting that resonates with people, the loneliness of the urban existence is a thing. And so if you're not naturally an extrovert you don't automatically get those connections that you would have in a smaller town.
1: Well, there's a part in your bio here that I'm curious to learn more about, which is you went from Circuit City to I got my first programming job in 2007. I'm always fascinated by how people find programming because it's not like I went to law school and then I became a lawyer. So how did you stumble into programming?
0: Yeah, well, this is great. Now everyone knows how old I am. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) great, sure you will. (laughs) I picked it up on my own. I, for years, was a self-taught engineer. I literally just went to php.net back in high school and read the documentation and made stuff. I had a friend that ran a hosting company. So I had a server available to me so I could make my stuff public. It was all terrible, right? But, you know, it mostly worked. It was full of horrible SQL injection exploits and everything. But just like learning anything else, I iterated on that, learned some more. And then it really came down to someone at a company just taking a flyer on me. Hiring the kid who's been slinging computers for three years to help out with a website or an app or what have you. Like all first breaks, it kind of came because I knew somebody that worked at the company that got me the interview and that's about it. So, yeah, everything else was mine, but I didn't actually get a computer science degree until years after that. So that was circa 2007. And I did my master's in computer science and finished that in 2015. So I was a self taught developer for quite a long time, for a pretty good portion of my career.
1: I want to ask more about that master's, especially given sort of where in your career you got it. But I'm curious, just going back, what drew you to programming in the first place? What was the sort of connection that you felt with it or what sort of itch within yourself did it scratch?
0: It's a little bit different for me. I mean, when I was a kid, middle school, high school, right, just was always fascinated with computers. And I think that's a fairly classic story. I was drawn to them for whatever reason. It was really exciting. And if you think about the period of... Roughly 1998 to 2005. That was a really, really exciting time in computing, right? You had the dot com run up and the burst, and then kind of coming out of it a little bit. And so there was a lot going on. Things were changing really quickly. There was a lot to learn, and that really excited me. It was the only thing that I was excited about learning. It was a little bit rough because my high school didn't offer anything. We had a, what we called an intro to tech class, and it was mostly CAD. <laughs> I actually wrote my high school's HTML curriculum. That was my project for a semester was just writing an HTML class. Cause I knew it and none of the teachers did.
1: Wow. I'm going to date myself. My closest high school class was HyperCard. Have you ever heard of HyperCard? Uh, no, I'm not quite that old. <laughs> HyperCard was like the web before the web. It was like, Hey, look, we can make this thing where when you click on a thing, it makes another thing happen. Oh my god this is revolutionary this is crazy you can make quote unquote interactive presentations
0: thrilling right yeah (laughs) Uh, i mean it's powerpoint
1: exactly love it (laughs) (laughs) when you first started getting professional gigs and doing this a job what was the plan at that point like where did you think this was headed or was it just like this will pay the bills until i figure out where i'm headed
0: yeah no plan it was all very ad hoc. I mean, I, you know, I started out freelancing and stuff like that. So it was basically anybody who was willing to take a chance on me before I actually got the actual full-time programming job at a real company. Yeah, it was tough. <laughs> it was tough.
1: How so? What was challenging about that phase of it? it just proving yourself,
0: right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there was no portfolio. I mean, people didn't really have portfolios back then for the most part. And I didn't have any... Real references, you know, you, you can use your freelance clients as a reference, but what's that really worth, right? And frankly, I didn't know. I was a 19, 20 some year old kid. I don't know how the world works. I was still in school. You know, I, I was working full time. I was taking classes part-time and then later full-time the entire time. Instead of sitting at my desk, eating lunch or going out to lunch with my coworkers, I drove to the local community college and took an economics class for an hour. Don't do that. I don't recommend it. Honestly, I didn't know enough about the way the world worked until I was out of school, but I was lucky in that I had been working the whole time. So I actually had some experience and figured out how to function in an office and in a company and what companies want from me. Right. Prior to that, companies were a source for a paycheck and you just had to convince them to give it to you because you were desperate. You know, you've been eating ramen. And so I kind of figured out how to behave as an adult, just through trial and error and a lot of awkward exchanges.
1: As you said, that's not necessarily the recommended path to work full time as you're going to school to sort of mix those two things. What was motivating you to do that? You're like, you must have had classmates and friends who like when you had to go to work were out partying or doing something else that seemed more fun.
0: Yeah, I was broke. (laughs) Hugger is a really, really good motivator. I was working full time, but as an entry level engineer. And this was circa 2006, 2007, right? And it was kind of before a lot of really, really big tech companies came in and started paying people a ton of money. And so entry-level salaries for an engineer, especially in a tiny town in the middle of Illinois, honestly, I could have went and I had friends who were plumbers that made more than me. I'll put it that way. So I I had to to finish my degree. I was like, if there's any chance of me making more money, I got to get one of these degree things that everyone thinks is important. But I'm entirely on my own. My family doesn't have money. I grew up in a really blue collar working class family. I didn't have them to support me. So I just kept working because I needed to pay the rent.
1: Yeah, I can, uh, that's another bit of overlap. I can relate. I did the same thing in college. I learned graphic design sort of through a work study job and loved it and just kind of wanted to do it all the time. And so I did the same thing from basically sophomore year on, I worked full time while I was also in school and then had that same experience of getting out and being like, yeah, I've already done like three years in the professional world. I know how this works.
0: Yeah. It was a weird thing because once I, when I finally finished school, you know, obviously it took me a little bit longer when I only had a job, I was like, what do I do now? Why is this so easy? Yeah. (laughs) And so turning that off, I actually failed in turning that off. So I went to grad school. (laughs) So I only actually had a, a two, three years in between my undergrad and grad.
1: yeah, that's the next part I want to hit on, because I love this, that you took a hiatus from building software and spent a couple of years in the algorithmic trading industry. I assume this flowed out of your BS in finance that you thought, okay, I've got this degree in this thing, even though I've been working in this other profession, I should go to this sort of tangential or related financial take on this.
0: Yeah, I think what led me to that, I think, was that, you know, I already had some programming experience. And do I really want to go through and convince these people that I know this stuff, and the answer for undergrad was no. And the other part of it, of course, is just cold hard cash, right? You know, John Dillinger is like when they asked John Dillinger why he robbed banks, he said, "That's where the money is." Yeah, <laughs> that's where the money is. Like, uh, you know, there's these guys making tons of money being algorithmic traders. You know, the industry was a little bit newer back then, not quite as crowded, and there were a lot of people making a lot of money. It's, well, I want some of that money. It it also helped that I was in Chicago, right? And so Mm -hmm. we have the options exchanges here, or at least the original biggest one. Futures exchanges are here. All the huge banks, hedge funds, right? I mean, there is an ecosystem here for quantitative finance in the way that there's an ecosystem for tech in San Francisco. So it's one of the strengths of being in Chicago was that I was able to do that, right? There were direct internship opportunities with my school. All right, well, I'll go learn this thing. And I did. The timing didn't really work out that well. I was only in the industry for a couple of years and it was shrinking then. So I said, ah, you know what, I'm going back to tech. It's a much more positive environment and I think there's more room to grow.
1: Yeah. It's, it's funny you mentioned that about Chicago. I feel like Chicago, at least in the sort of cultural zeitgeist, gets overlooked a lot and people forget the amount of industry that there is and those things like that there is a robust finance industry in Chicago. I yeah. It doesn't get the credit it deserves.
0: Well, yeah, look, I'm a Chicagoan. I know that. (laughs) Look, we're in the middle of the country. People often fly over us. They don't think about us. But the reality is that we're a big diversified economy. There is no one giant industry. Finance is a big part of it, but so is manufacturing. So is tech now. There is no industry that dominates it in the way that, you know, I mean, so let's take San Francisco, for example, right? If you pull tech out of San Francisco and Silicon Valley, what do you have, right? I don't know, not sure, but that was me hedging a little bit again, right? I knew that in Chicago, no matter what happened to the economy, because I moved up here during the financial crisis, right? And what I knew is that I was getting callbacks for interviews in Chicago and I definitely wasn't anywhere else. And so
1: here I am. So what did you learn in that couple of years doing algorithmic trading about, I mean, not just sort of how to do algorithmic trading, but what did you learn about working and about what you want to do with your life?
0: Yeah, a ton is the short answer to that. I learned what it's like to be in a toxic environment. That was a big one for those who haven't been on or sat near any kind of trading floor, whether it's at an exchange back when that used to be a thing uh, or in a company that's just has a floor full of traders, it's pretty aggressive. Think men's locker room, sometimes literally lots of screaming, lots of swearing, lots of yelling. It's pretty toxic. You learn a lot and you have the ability to make a lot of money, but in terms of your mental health and well-being, not great. The tech and the work was incredible, right? You know, I got to kind of learn how to tease signals out of the market and how to evaluate them and how to implement them. I did execution for a little while, right? So those are still skills that I use every day. Everybody's an options trader these days, but I actually know how they work. And so, I, you know, I did get to transfer a few skills out. But in general, a lot of it's really, really sort of industry specific. And so I didn't see myself staying in the industry for another 25 years for the rest of my career. And so
1: I figured it's better to get out sooner rather than later. It's really interesting that exposure to a toxic culture that early, because there's a part of when you're working, even though you had your professional experience as a programmer before, this is still kind of your first quote unquote real job out of school where you're sort of putting your degree to work and you're, you're probably going into it at least thinking like, this is my job now. This is my career. And then to realize over time that eh, this isn't really the environment for me, I feel like when you're in your first job, you just go like, well, this is what working is like. This is just how the industry sort of operates. How long did it take you of being in that environment before you went, A, this isn't normal, and or B, like, yeah, this isn't, I just don't thrive here. This is not the sort of water I want to swim in.
0: Yeah, it was really fast. No more than a year, I would say. When you're not sleeping well, You're thinking about what positions you have on and whether the guy covering the overnight is going to, who knows what he's going to do, right? Maybe he's going to sell it all. Maybe he's going to buy a whole bunch more. I I don't know. What am I going to wake up to? It's rough and it's not supportive, right? So if prop trading, which is what I did, proprietary trading, which is trading for the company's account, there are no outside investors. It's not like a hedge fund. It's just a company, a pile of money and a bunch of people trading. If you're not making money, you're going to be gone more quickly than you would think. And so it's very much, you know, if you haven't worked in the industry, if you think of like the hot sales guy, right? The guy who's really just crushing it, bringing in all this accounts and all this revenue. And then there's the other sales guy who isn't. There's the golden child and then there's everybody else. And so trading is very much like that. You're chopped liver unless you're absolutely crushing it. So if you get sick, you have a drawdown or whatever, like, don't expect any support from the company or your coworkers cause you're not making them any money. And so you're useless.
1: How were you at it? Were you good at it?
0: Oh, well it depends. So I was pretty terrible at execution. Execution being buying and selling, whether in an automated way or by hand or both. I did learn about myself in that I am not super great at coming up with solutions to things really, really quickly under pressure. I am not someone who can price options off of a curve in under a second. And so if you can't do that, you're in trouble, right? I actually had one job interview one time where I sat down in front of these two guys and they sat there for, I don't know, about 20 minutes. And one would ask me, okay, so what is 236 times 48? And then I would give (laughs) them the answer. And then the next question would be, okay, what's 384 (laughs) times 27? And I would give them the answer. And we sat there for 20 minutes and then those guys left. Two more guys came in and they did the same thing for another 20 minutes, right? So yeah, I'm not good at that. <laughs> a Few people are, right? It's just a really, really tough thing. I was much better at the quiet, more data sciencey quant work, which is just analyzing huge masses of tick data and then taking the signal out of that and then implementing it in code so that we can actually execute against it in an automated way, which is a lot more comfortable
1: for me. So when you finally decided that that was not going to be your future, that's about when you went back to grad school?
0: Yeah, actually. So I left that and then I moved into tech at the same time, right? So I think it must have been fall of 2013, left trading in fall of 2013, I took a job at uh, a health tech company of all things, not levels, obviously. Uh, yeah, also went back to grad school full time, which my wife was really, really thrilled about because we were planning a wedding at the time. <laughs>
1: What was the driver to go back to school?
0: I think I needed to prove to myself that I know what I'm doing. I think that it would be easy for me to present myself in front of a hiring manager, for example, and they could look at my experience and go like, what on earth are you doing here? Right? You were a programmer for a little while, then you did this trading thing. Like what, why, why are you here? And so I just figured it would be easier and it would open more doors if I could just wave my master's in computer science around. At the same time, I didn't want to be in school forever, and so I decided to do it full time, and had no life for a couple of years. <laughs> what did you take out of it? I think a lot of the theory. You know, when you're a self-taught engineer, you you don't learn the theory and the principles behind what you're doing, right? Much in the same way that you could be an apprentice electrician and help out doing stuff as a set of hands, but you don't really understand all of the concepts behind what you're doing. And so I learned that about myself. Before I left finance, I was running into some fundamental problems, which was, first of all, I wasn't speaking the same language as my coworkers. They all had CS degrees. And so I knew once we finally agreed on terms, I was like, oh, okay, I know that thing. Right. But it was just rocky because every time they would refer to, I don't know, some kind of algorithm or a principle or what have you that I just didn't know because that's what you learn in school. And so I said, all right, well, I'll go learn that stuff.
1: Do you like being in school? you like just the act of sort of being there and and learn, you know, take apart the sort of hecticness it introduces into your life, but just the act of being in school and taking classes?
0: No, I hate it. It's awful. I mean, I I have never been a good student, honestly. Like, I I actually just barely passed high school. I was in the bottom 10% of my class. So yeah, I've always been terrible at it. You know, my undergrad, I think, took me six or seven years to finish. Grad school is the only one I finished on time. I don't like academia. It's all very, I don't know. There's a lot of hoops that you have to jump through, and most of it isn't applicable to the real world, it's just sort of, I don't know, there's a lot of navel-gazing, kind of impracticality built into academia, and that, that always bugs me, because I want to do stuff. Yeah. I don't want to write papers.
1: Yeah. You don't take MOOCs in your spare time just for kicks?
0: <laughs> no. I, I mean, let, look, let's be fair. I do enjoy learning, right? I'm currently learning three languages, right? So learning is important to me. But school and academia, meh.
1: Yeah, that's what I was kind of getting at because I know just, you know, I'm glad you mentioned the languages thing, just know you a little bit. It does seem like you are in in many ways a sort of constant student travels. Part of that language learning. Obviously, I know you're an avid reader, which I want to get to. So that's why I was curious about how you feel about school. Like I completely hear your points about the sort of environment of academia. And My wife works in academia now. You know, I kind of see the view from that side and as a work culture. Boy, coming from a place like Levels, it is maddening for her to Out live of in that. that kind of bureaucracy. But I found, especially by the time I went back to grad school, that I sort of liked the learning thing. Like I could see myself being one of these guys who retires and then just like goes back and gets another master's or a PhD or something, just because like I don't know, it would be cool to just think about medieval literature for two years. Yeah, <laughs> like that part, I I really kind of took. You know, it it occurred to me at one point. I think in College, I try to impress this to my son that the cool thing about that is you just pick a thing and you go, I want to know more about this. And there's some guy who's like, or woman who's just studied this all their life. And they're like, All right, let's talk about theology in the 14th century. And you're like, Cool. Like, this, this is like, Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, that, that's fantastic. Right. But heart sciences, uh, I'm not so sure. Right. I mean, maybe uh, I certainly would consider it. It's like I said, I think if it's the best way to learn something, then sure. And the nice thing about academia is it's easy in a way, right, Mm -hmm. because people tell you what to do and then you do it and then they tell you how you did, which is very, very different, obviously, than the working world, where often you have to figure out what to do and then do it. And then maybe somebody will tell you how you did. But that's not really the point. The point is that you did the thing.
1: Yeah, well. I'm curious, I know you bounced around a bit, well, that's probably not a a fair way to say it, but you, you had some different jobs sort of between school and when you landed at levels bounce around makes it sound like uh, you were fired a lot and had to restart your career, (laughs) (laughs) which is not what I wanted to imply. But um, what was the kind of path to ending up here? How did you figure out what industries or what kinds of jobs you wanted to work in?
0: Yeah, that took a while. Due to my, the aforementioned upbringing and everything uh, being broke for so long, I just continued following the money. And so I didn't account for work environment, who I'm working with, what product I'm working on, how that product affects the world. None of that stuff. It was who's going to give me the biggest paycheck. And so surprise, surprise, right? I ended up in more toxic environments that taught me that, you know, it really does matter who you work with and what company you work for because it's your life, right? Uh, You know, you're spending a third of your waking hours usually every week, and so it matters.
1: Yeah, (laughs) well, again, like that's the lesson that some people, A, sort of never get the opportunity to learn, to even step back from the places they're working or the environments they work in, I think, to realize that what they're working in is not the only way it can be. I mean, even the sort of bureaucracy side of things, which is not the same as things like a toxic culture, but my wife works with folks who have only ever worked in academia, and I don't think it would ever occur to them that you could run a company the way we run levels, for instance, or even say, let's say a bigger startup that's maybe yeah. more analogous to something the size of a university, because it's just, against the sort of water they swim in, and it's fortunate to get that experience to sort of be able to jump around places, and were you sort of inching closer to A place like levels or did you get to levels and and was this a pretty fundamental shift in culture from where you'd been before?
0: Oh, no, I was looking for it after a couple of toxic jobs that paid really, really well, I did a startup and that was with somebody that I already knew. And I knew that shared most of my values. And so that, um, that worked really, really well. And I saw flashes was like, oh, this is what it can be like, right? Like jobs don't have to be constant suffering. And so after that startup, I decided, I was like, all right, well, I'll do this myself. And so I found a co-founder and we built a company together. It was small, but importantly, what it was, was we tried to identify cultures within companies. So think like Glassdoor, but better, I guess, (laughs) you know, with actual data about what it's like to work there. And so in doing so, we identified a lot of internal company values. These values being, you know, even something as simple as, oh, we have a junior developer program all the way up to uh, we're fully remote, we're async, maybe we have unlimited paid time off, or this company is run and founded by engineers, for example. All of those things we found to be very, very important to candidates because we went out there and we talked to a whole bunch of people who were looking for jobs as engineers. And they said, these are the things that we care about. And so that got me thinking even more about values. And, and when the pandemic killed that startup, I was pretty sure that I was just gonna start another one, maybe in a different space or slightly tweak the product, whatever. And I just happened across levels and happened to have a phone call with Andrew and found out, oh, this is exactly what I'm looking for, right? Because on the first call, we were completing each other's sentences, right? And so I said to myself, I was, I was like, Oh, maybe I don't have to do this myself, right? If I were to build a company, levels would be it. So Mm. let's just join. It's already here, right? All these great people are here. They share my values. I trust them. I think they're
1: competent. The product is fantastic. The mission is fantastic. What more do you want? Well, this is something I'd love to get at, especially knowing that that's what the company you were thinking about this and trying to sort of build a company around this idea of sussing out a company's culture because you predate me here, which is an increasingly smaller percentage of the company. I think I was employee 13, I want to say, and you were here and established by the time I came on, which means you were joining an even smaller team than that. How many people were here when you joined?
0: I go back and forth on this. I think I was number 10, but that's if you count five of the founders. So I don't know how you want to do that, math.
1: Right, right. So What's interesting about I think about joining a company at that stage, because I know I had these thoughts even with 13 people is how much you can really know about what a company culture is going to be when it's that small, right? It's like you and your buddy starting a company. The company culture is just you and their shared values and like how you two interact with each other. And that's different than when it's a very large company. So in some ways, I guess what I'm getting at is like when there's 10 people, there are nine people there, five of whom are founders. A lot of it is you're just sort of taking the word of these people that they mean what they say about how they want to run this thing as it grows. So I'm curious what you learned both through your previous company and coming here about how do you know when you're joining something small? How do you suss out? How do you kind of analyze not just what the culture, what they say they want the culture to be or what it is with that very small group, but what it could grow into?
0: Yeah, this is something that's unfortunately really, really hard to put into words, it very much is a, is a feel thing. It's a gut feeling. Fortunately, you know, the Levels recruiting process then as now involves basically a million conversations with different members of the team. I'm pretty sure I spoke to every single person that worked at Levels before I joined. So what I'm doing or what I was doing when I had those conversations was, first of all, I'm looking for consistency right? If one person has one value and the other person has a value that's different and the other person has a value that contradicts both of those, then yeah, maybe they're not necessarily putting their money where their mouth is, right? With levels, I found phenomenal consistency. Everybody was on the same page. Everybody knew what the values were and what they were going to be, especially when having an employee zero or a founder at startups in the past, you kind of learn to smell BS, right? And I didn't even have the tiniest whiff of that For me, weirdly, joining Levels was a little bit disorienting because when I joined Levels as employee 10, it was already the biggest company that I had worked at in the last five years. Yeah, it's a little bit different for me, I guess.
1: What's changed in the time that you've been here? I mean, we're now approaching close to 50. How have you seen the culture evolve?
0: Uh, Fortunately, uh, the culture has only evolved to be better, at least from my point of view. I was worried, right? Uh, sort of rightfully so. You know, I mean, at smaller companies previously, I told myself I'm out before we're big enough to have an HR department. That was mm-hmm. my line. So obviously, you know, Levels has got to pass that now. And I've been pleasantly surprised. But I, actually, you know what? I wasn't surprised because when I was interviewing and certainly when I, uh, after I started, the founders immediately had trust from me. Like I could tell, basically what I was telling my wife, it was these guys get it. Mm. These guys know how to put together a company culture that people want to work at, and I want to work there. And so I have not been horribly surprised at how things have grown. It's been amazing, right? And a lot of that comes through, I think, the hiring process. I interview a lot of candidates, and we have had phenomenal engineers that haven't made it through the process because we got some indication that they don't share our values. That's how important it is to us. Most companies would not do that, right? They'd be like, oh, but that person has, they can give me the code. I want the code, give me the code, but that's not how Levels operates, right? They really do put their money where their mouth is when we say that that culture is important.
1: I'm thinking a lot about this hiring question now, because I'm hiring a position and, you know, in the thick of candidate interviews at in various stages and indexing to your point, indexing on this so much more heavily than I ever have in the past. I mean, I've done a lot of hiring. I've built companies and. It's an area I've never felt particularly confident in because I could tell you a story of all the genius people I hired, and I could tell you a story of the people I've hired that did not work out well at all. <laughs> and I've never quite known what the right just never known how to sort of suss it out. You know, I feel like it's always a little bit of a do you just sort of lean heavily on the technical challenge? do you lean heavily on the vibe? and i and I've had both of those heuristics betray me, where it's like somebody is technically great, but then you realize six months in. You know, to your point about sort of culture and values, like, oh, we just don't click. And I've hired people with whom I clicked and loved working with, but just didn't fit the job. And so I'm trying to think a lot about how you suss out that sort of culture part. I'm curious what you've learned, if there's any questions that you've found really help elucidate that point when you're talking to somebody or areas of conversation that you go into or ways to sort of probe or just signals that you pick up. What have you learned about interviewing for culture?
0: Yeah, this is, again, a a bit of a feel thing. You have to find ways to ask people about the things that they don't like. And not only do you not, you have to find out about things that they don't like, but you have to kind of press them a little bit on the answers that they give. Because if you just let people talk, then what they will do is they will take the job ad and then they will read it to you. And that doesn't, help me because I know what our job ad says, right? I want to know how you feel about our job ad. I want to know how you feel about potentially working here. The other thing that I think helps a lot is being candid about what it's like to work here, right? So, for example, we're an asynchronous company. That's kind of a new thing, and it's hard. We have challenges associated with that, right? We have projects that probably, honestly, would have gone better if we were co-located in person, because you have that type feedback loop, et cetera, et cetera, right? But we think that on balance, it's more than worth it. And so if I get questions, for example, about our async culture and like, how does that work with, I don't know, outages, for example, then it shows that people are thinking about the culture. And if they're thinking about it, odds are they probably are a better candidate and probably share more of our values than you would think. If they focus entirely on the technical, I can't learn a lot from that, right? I can learn that you're a great programmer, but I can't learn whether or not you're gonna fit in here and be happy here ultimately, right? Because I think the worst thing that we can do is hire somebody and then three months later, they just leave because they don't like it here. No one's happy about that, right? They certainly aren't happy because they left a job that maybe they liked or maybe they didn't. And now three months later, they gotta find a new one. We're unhappy because we've invested all this time and effort in somebody And they ultimately weren't happy and unhappy people are not productive. So it's just lose, lose, lose. Avoiding that is by far the most important thing.
1: Yeah, it's a really great point. I like your phrasing of they'll read the job ad back to you because I've been doing some of these early culture calls, sometimes Sam or Miz does them. And I, and I've done some with my candidates and, you know, I'll talk about we are asynchronous and here's what that means. And for instance, it's not a great place to be if you want to find your social circle at work. Yeah. Then I'm always sort of hedging and going, but we are actually pretty connected. Like I feel more connected to my teammates than I thought I would at this much of an async, like somehow through threads or whatever the stuff we have. Like I I do have a sense of knowing people, but I do get a sense often that people, you know, that's pretty clear what the right answer is. If you're in a job interview, it's because you want that job, or at least you think at that point you want that job. And so they're going to go, yeah, no, I'm good. I can make friends elsewhere. Yep. Not looking for that here. And Oh yeah. Yep. Documentation. I'm a big fan of documentation. That sounds great. Yeah, absolutely. We should definitely document things. So I like your sense of probing on that a little bit further and, and seeing what kind of questions they ask to get at where they're not just reading the job ad back to you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes you get more insightful questions that are like, so how much of your time do you spend reading documentation? And I'll spoil it for you. It's a lot. It, basically anything that shows that they're actually thinking about what's going on here instead of trying to pass a test usually is a good sign.
1: I'm curious, how does the async remote nature intersect with your job as an engineer in ways that are markedly different than places you've had in the past?
0: Yeah, my phone doesn't ring, which is nice. Yeah. In fact, I don't know that it ever has. I've gotten one or two texts to say, hey, go look at this. It's urgent. But other than that, I'm mostly left to my own devices. Uh, you don't have anybody walking up to your desk, obviously, because we're fully remote, which is fantastic. That was my number one complaint when I worked in an office was some salesperson walking up and saying, Hey, can you do this thing for the hundred thousand dollar contract I'm trying to land? It's like, well, okay, yeah, I guess I'll do the thing. Async, I think forces us to be more thoughtful and deliberate about the way that we do things. For example, I'm the directly responsible individual for a small project right now. And since I know that we're async if I need feedback on a document, for example, I know that I have to get that request for feedback out several days before I need it. And so it it sort of is this virtuous cycle that keeps things from becoming urgent because it forces you to prepare ahead of time. Outages, of course, are a completely different thing, right? If something breaks, then we have plans for that and how to handle that. That's all fine. But those are rare, right? Most of the time, we're all just kind of kicking around doing our thing. And we're able to do so in a peaceful way, rather than kind of lurching from fire to fire.
1: What surprised you about working in this culture? What do you know now that you would have been surprised to think a year and a half ago before you started or two years before you started here?
0: I was surprised that that the async thing, first of all, actually works, right? We actually ship incredible product and a of code, and it's just amazing. This is by far the most productive team that I have ever been on. Uh, And I've been an engineer for 15 years, so that was surprising. I don't know why it surprises me because of course it works if you think about it. And yeah, I think that the idea that I don't have to have my butt in this chair, I'm actually standing up right now, but, (laughs) um, you know, that I don't have to be present from 8 AM to 5 PM every day. I don't have to constantly watch my Slack notifications like a hawk. I don't have Slack notifications because we don't use that. and. I can kind of live my life, right? So this morning, for example, I got LASIK three months ago. And so I had a follow-up with my eye doctor this morning. I didn't tell anybody. It's not even on my calendar. I just went and nobody missed me. At previous jobs, that's certainly not the case. Somebody would have noticed. Somebody would have been like, hey, where the hell are you? What's going on? I can't find you. Help, help, help. And so everyone tells you when you start out at levels that that's something that you can do, that we're focused on output and not how much, time you're working. But after a very short time here, I learned that that's actually how things are. You actually can get up and go to the doctor if you need to in the middle of the day. Nobody's going
1: to bother you about that. That's such a great way of putting it that in some ways, the culture is sort of the sum of people learning that lesson for themselves and those lessons continuing to be true. That like each person who starts goes through some version of that oh, people do actually take time off or, oh, I can actually work the sort of hours I want to work or direct my own project priority to some degree and that kind of stuff. It's funny. I feel like everybody who starts here probably has a story like that of like, oh, a couple months in, I sort of realized like, oh, right, this does actually sort of work like this. And I guess we are all sort of unlearning our priors from other jobs.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. For me, a lot of it comes just from trust and leadership. When I started, we didn't really have a vacation policy. It was just Take time. If you need time, put it on your calendar. It's fine. Then we brought in the new vacation policy where we have to, you know, there's mandatory one week per quarter that we have to take off. And here's how the rollout went for that, right? Sam, who's our CEO said, Hey, this is our vacation policy. Now you need to take off one week per quarter. Also I'm taking next week off, (laughs) right? There's a difference between being a boss and a leader and the levels leadership fortunately is all leaders and not bosses.
1: Well, that's actually the, the. Vic- it's funny you mentioned the vacation as the last thing I want to touch on with you. So when I was here, maybe six months or so, I'd take it some vacation, but I don't think I'd done my week yet because that was one of the things I was a little skeptical about because not everybody in the company does, right? Just timing wise. And I don't know, people have sort of different priorities. And so it was clear to me when I started that it was not a hundred percent consistent that everybody took that week per quarter. And so just for my own learning, and I think we were sort of discussing this with Ms. And and Sam and and stuff, I went through and did an audit. I went back and looked at the vacation calendar for the year prior or something and just looked at how many people were taking their week per quarter. And you were very consistent that you were taking the week per quarter. And I'm curious if that was hard for you to do or if it just sort of fit well into how you wanted to live or what you were already doing even before that policy existed.
0: Yeah, I mean, certainly it wasn't hard, right? Vacation is not hard. (laughs) Let's be real. I definitely felt a little bit twitchy turning things off. Back then, we were still using Slack, turning those notifications off, turning off the notifications for my work email. That made me a little twitchy. That was weird because I've always been on small teams where it's me or nobody. And so like not having that connection was really, really strange to me. But I learned pretty quickly. Time off is nice. I am consistent about taking it because for that same reason, right? You went back and looked at the calendars and you noticed that I was consistent. And I want every person who joins Levels after this to see that same thing, that we actually do this. It's not marketing hype. We actually take the time.
1: Yeah, and it definitely served that way for me, right? To see the handful, you were not the only one, there were definitely a handful of folks who did it, but to see that and to see that those were people who, my sense was were respected senior members of the company who were doing that, it wasn't like there was an aura of like, oh, you know, that's Jeremy. He's always taken time. I was like, no, Jeremy's <laughs> like one of our top dudes. And like, of course he does this because it's kind of what we do. So I, yeah, I think that signal part's right. But the twitchiness is the thing I guess I was getting at when I say, is it hard? Cause that's yeah. like, sort of just struggled with as it is. It's, and again, I'm sort of a department of one in some ways. And so that idea of kind of walking away from things, but also trusting the like no fire drill ethos we have here of like, it's okay world's not going to end. And there is some redundancy. And the whole point of this exercise is to find out what breaks.
0: Yep. And candidly, that is one of the motivators for the vacation policy is that you're going to find gaps. You're going to find places where only Jeremy knows this stuff. And you know how we found out? Because we couldn't get a hold of him for a week. You know, the surprising thing, I think, is that it's rarely disruptive. Maybe that's because we designed our processes and systems in a way that it's resilient, or maybe it's that we have resilient people. It's Maybe it's all of those things. But yeah, generally, it's gonna be fine.